I hope that you can remember a time like that in your life, a time when you were converted, a time when Christ and the things of Christ first became precious and real to you. And if you can remember such a time as that, then you appreciate the joy of the tune that we just sang about such a time. I'm reading not the text that's printed in the bulletin, but from the fourth chapter of Matthew, the first 11 verses, where Matthew describes an event that took place right after the baptism of Jesus. And he says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus responded, It is also written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You are aware, I would imagine, that the public ministry of our Lord Jesus began with his public baptism. He was about 33 years old at the time. His life before that is generally unknown to us, but this is when he emerges from the home of his mother from Nazareth in Galilee, appears somewhere along the banks of the Jordan River, and is baptized by John the Baptist, who was also his cousin. On that occasion, we read that there was a voice from the heavens that quite likely only John was able to understand, although many were standing nearby, and the voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And of this event, John would later testify, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and resting on him. And again, we might safely assume that the Baptist was the only one who saw that vision. But then we read that scarcely had the waters of baptism dried when that same spirit that John had just seen descending upon Jesus at the time of his baptism led him off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We find this strange, that the father who had just declared his love for his son had just announced to the second to the last of the Old Testament prophets that he was pleased with his son, should in the next instant direct his steps off into that wilderness where Satan lurked. The day of Jesus' baptism was followed by at least 40 days of fasting, 
40 days at least in which the devil came to him in the wilderness of Judea, a period commonly known as the temptation of Christ. I'd like to look with you at this event. Not so much in terms of the details of the individual challenges that Satan made. We've considered those before. But now in terms of the sweeping themes that flow through these 11 verses. The first thing that catches our eye when we read of the temptation of Christ is its deliberate nature. We are not told that Jesus just stumbled into a place of temptation as if that were an avoidable accident. We're not told that God gave Satan permission to go to the place where Jesus could be found. But we're told that the spirit the father had just given to the son led him deliberately into the wilderness precisely for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. This time in Jesus' life was one of deprivation, of loneliness, one in which this man who had sense of such, a, such a vision of purpose and vision before him must have felt useless. And the particular challenges to his wisdom and righteousness that were made during this time, we are made to understand were all a part of the wise, deliberate plan of God the Father for the earthly life of God the Son. When you and I find ourselves tempted or put in times of testing and trial, we can have this same confidence that these circumstances are somehow and mysteriously a part of God's perfect plan for our lives. The time and conditions of temptation are orchestrated by God to accomplish his purposes primarily in us and on occasion perhaps through us as well. There's a common objection to the idea that God is deliberately and directly involved in temptation, and it's based on words found in the first chapter of James. I'm sure that some of you are familiar with these. But James said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. But then here in Matthew, we read a description of Jesus' temptation, and we are told that God, the Holy Spirit, deliberately led Jesus into the setting in which he knew that temptation would take place. There's an apparent contradiction between these two passages, but it's resolved when we realize that the circumstances being addressed by James were those in which men were blaming God for their failure in the presence of temptation. The issue with James is not that God presents temptation to men, but rather that men had yielded to temptation and then were blaming God for their own moral failure. God in his sovereignty and wisdom leads us into settings of temptation. We in our responsibility are accountable to him for our responses to those temptations. This seems to be the idea behind the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you except as such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able and will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Again, God creates the circumstances of temptation 
limiting them by his knowledge of our ability to resist at that moment and making as a part of the temptation a way of escape and then holds us accountable for our response to temptation. Understanding that the temptation of Jesus was very deliberate, we have to wonder why. We find that as we grow older and older in Christ, and as we increase somewhat in our knowledge of his character and his working and his will, that we are more and more hesitant to try to guess the purposes of God in doing whatever God does. We hear him say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. And more and more as we mellow in Christ, we agree. In the case of Jesus, we know that he was not being put to the test because he had sinned. In fact, we know that Jesus had not sinned before this time of temptation. He did not sin in this time of temptation, and he did not sin after it was over. In fact, one of the claims made by Christ, echoed in the testimonies of people who knew him best, is that he never sinned. This sets Jesus Christ apart from any other person who has ever lived upon the earth. It makes him uniquely deserving of our admiration and trust, and it qualifies him to be that lamb without spot or blemish offered by God as a sacrifice to placate his wrath and to purchase our eternal salvation. And we know that Jesus wasn't being tested in order that God might learn something about Jesus that he didn't already know. At the beginning of the 139th Psalm, David wonders at the completeness and the depth of God's knowledge of him as a man. And he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it altogether. And of God's supernatural knowledge of the character and the lives of men, we read together a moment ago this testimony of Jesus, that he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he already knew what was in man. Jesus was not being put to the test in order that God the Father might learn something about God the Son that he did not already know. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, we read of a time when God put Abraham to the test by instructing him to go to a distant mountain and offer his only begotten son as a sacrifice. God did not put Abraham to the test that God might learn something about Abraham. He put Abraham to the test in order that Abraham might learn something about Abraham. And you and I should remember that when we are put to the test, because in those tests, if we are walking with God, we learn valuable lessons about who we really are. God put Jesus to the test in order that he might be better instructed in the ways of godliness. In Hebrews 5, we read that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In Hebrews 2, we read, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And in Hebrews 4, these words that we often use as a call to prayer. 
seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, through all of the sufferings that Jesus endured in the flesh and his time of temptation in particular, God the Father was at work preparing him for his ministry of teaching, for the worst suffering of the cross, and making him the great and sympathetic high priest of our faith. God was at work in the temptation of Jesus, teaching things that Jesus needed to know in order to be all that God called him to be in the flesh as our Savior and our priest. And in Jesus' revulsions at the suggestion that Satan made and his ability to resist them, he learned much about the very practical reality of the scriptural principles that he had learned as a boy and as a young man. How protected Jesus had been in life up to this point, we have no way of knowing. But here in the wilderness, his knowledge and commitment to those principles were put to the test, and he passed that test with flying colors. Many of us are being put to the test. Apart from the trials and temptations of our individual lives, we are troubled by issues facing our church. We need to be very careful how we respond to those issues. For we know that the source of our trials is a wise and loving God, and that in them and through them are valuable lessons for us to learn about ourselves and about the principles of godly living. May our prayer for ourselves and for one another be that every member and every friend of this church will pass through this time in ways that honor God and reflect his grace. Most of you are familiar with the particular ways in which Jesus was approached by Satan. His first appeal was to the flesh, as if experience had taught him that this is the area of greatest human vulnerability. Jesus was fasting in the desert heat. He was hungry to the point of distraction and perhaps near delirium. So the devil came to him with a suggestion that he use his power to make loaves of bread out of the stones of the place. His second appeal was to the Lord's desire for acceptance by the Jews. Jesus wanted to be recognized as their Messiah, received as their king, trusted as their savior, followed as their shepherd. Satan's idea right out of a handbook on marketing was that Jesus do something splashy and attention getting. Go up to the temple, he said. Climb up onto the roof, stand on the edge until a large crowd gathers on the pavement beneath your feet and then throw yourself off. For after all, Satan said, more cynically than might appearing from his tone of voice, hasn't God promised to give his angels charge over you, lest you so much as stub your toe on a rock? He says the angels will catch you, they will lower you safely to the ground, and you will become the instant hero of the Jews. His third and final appeal was to the Lord's wider concern for the nations of the world, the Gentiles in the language of the Jews. 
And here the devil makes his least rational and vilest suggestion with an astonishing boldness, he says to Christ, in effect, if you will sell your soul to me, I will give you everything that you want. We consider the range of the suggestions that Satan made. And we wonder how he knew that each of these was a real concern to Jesus. We wonder, does the devil have the ability to read our hearts and our minds to know what no other person might know about us? But on the grounds of Scripture, we have no reason to believe that he has such powers, but he has the obvious power to overhear human prayers. It's obvious during this time of quiet deprivation that Jesus was thinking about the Bible that he was rehearsing over and over, perhaps aloud, those portions of Scripture he had committed to memory, that he was contemplating the principles found in Scripture and organizing them in his mind into that theology that would underlay his teaching. But what is equally obvious, not so much from the inspired history as our fair expectations, is that he was also during this time spending hours in prayer, talking with God, his Father in heaven, about things that were of great importance to him. In what order these things might have been mentioned, we don't know, but his desire for the acceptance by the Jews certainly would have been mentioned. His concern about the wider scope of his ministry and the nations of the world, and I suspect closer and closer to the first thing that he mentioned in those prayers was his growing hunger we might easily assume that Satan simply overheard Jesus in his prayers, knew what was in his heart and mind, knew what was of greatest importance to him, and thus he approached him about each one of these important and sensitive areas in his trials and tribulation and temptations. We try to imagine what happened. If you were going to make this event into a play, what form would you have Satan take? Would he be an invisible voice booming over the church's PA system, but a person not seen? Or would he be visible on the stage? And if he were visible on the stage, what would he look like? Certainly not the common, almost comical caricature with the red suit, the pointed beard, the horns, the tail, the forked spear and the evil leer. That's too obvious. No one who ever saw anyone like that would be drawn to them or what their advice might be. It's far more likely that if Satan did appear in visible form, it was in the form of a, a kindly old man leaning upon his cane, wisdom etched into the lines of his face. His tone would have been soft and gentle, his manner humble and unassuming. We know of Satan's character because in 1 Peter 5.8 we read that he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we also know of his incredible ability to deceive and to disguise himself. For in 2 Corinthians 11.14 we read that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Perhaps with all of this in mind, the Lord would later warn Christians to be aware of wolves in sheep clothing. And we notice something 
very important about the devil's approach to Christ, and that is that he had never urged Jesus to do something that was blatantly and completely evil. Rather, he suggested that Jesus do the right thing in the wrong way, or the right thing at the wrong time, or the right thing for the wrong reason, but he never suggested to Jesus that just flat out he do the wrong thing. Satan has thousands of ways to get Christians to compromise the standards of God without ever suggesting openly the reality of the evil he wants us to perform. What works in my life probably wouldn't work in yours. What works in your life might not work in mine because all of these things are personalized by Satan who knows us better than we might like to think. But in each of our lives, the devil has tried and in each of our lives, the devil has succeeded in drawing us away from the life God calls us to lead. And in the thoughts and words and desires and actions that dishonor God, and with the result that our growth is stunted, the testimony of our lives is compromised, and the apparent will of God is frustrated. Christian people have been lured into adultery and embezzlement. Christian men have been overheard using language and telling stories that have no place on the lips of a godly man. Christian women have been prompted to dress and act in ways unbecoming to righteousness. Christian students have cheated in their schoolwork. Christian laborers have lied and covered up for one another. Odometers have been changed. Taxable income has been misrepresented. In churches, people have rushed to judgment. Rumors have been embraced and eagerly passed on. Character has been attacked. Reputations ruined. But none of this and much more has ever been suggested by Satan to Christians as the blatant evil that it ultimately is. Satan is so successful as sugarcoating sin that we often chew it and swallow it before its deadly effects are known to us. Let's remember the temptation of Christ and learn from it how subtle and crafty is the enemy of our souls. There's a final point that I'd like to make as we reflect upon this time in Jesus' life, and it's what we might call the secret of Jesus' success in dealing with temptation. To the first of Satan's temptations, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To the second, he said, again it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And to the third, he said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And each of these quotations, I trust you recognize, is not from Aristotle or Plato or a book of ancient religious wisdom. It is from the Bible. Jesus made no appeal to his identity as the son of God. He resorted not to the principles of logic. He made no argument from common sense. He quoted from the Bible in order to be victorious over temptation. I've been the pastor of this church for nearly four decades, and in that time, things have changed about me, particularly my views and my beliefs. You'd expect that 
In that time, you've changed in ways, too. We've grown in righteousness and our understanding of the character and the will of God. And if we were the same today as we were 35 years ago, then shame on us. Several of the changes that have taken place in my life have to do with my understanding and my commitment to the basic principles of our Reformed tradition. And I am today a much more complete, a much more proud and happy Presbyterian than I was 35 years ago. But one article of my personal faith has not changed in all of that time. And that relates to the authority of the Bible and God's intention that we put the scriptures to work in our lives. I earnestly believed that when I first stepped into the pulpit, and I believe it as firmly today, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that the faithful reading and study and contemplation of the Scriptures is one of the most necessary disciplines of the Christian life. Jesus said, if you continue in my Word, then you really are my disciples, and you will know the truth. And that truth will make you free. In the 119th Psalm, the question is first asked and then answered, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. In Psalm 19, David writes of his delight in the scriptures in this way, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You and I know nothing for sure about the character and the will of God apart from what he reveals to us on the pages of his word. Nothing can be known of what God requires of us or what God has done for us from any source other than the Bible. When a Christian leaves his Bible closed, it's like putting a strip of duct tape across the mouth of the Almighty and saying, I have no interest in what you have to say. It's a hard thing to say. But it is a necessary thing to say that the only life that is both pleasing and useful to God is that life in which the scriptures are opened and loved. If we're not reading and thinking about the scriptures, if we're not praying for wisdom to understand them and for the grace and the desire to obey what they say, then our lives are stunted and are of little use to the God who has redeemed us at such great cost to himself. We read of the temptation of Christ, and we derive from it, if we are able, many valuable lessons. We learn that the time of deprivation and trial in his life was a part of the deliberate will of his Father in heaven. We're reminded that Jesus was put to the test in order that he might learn important things about himself and be better prepared for ministry. We've discovered how subtle and deceiving Satan can be and warned to be alert to his attempts to distract us from holy living. And we've been reminded that the Lord required a working knowledge of Scripture in order to be victorious in temptation 
and caused to realize that if he who was wise beyond human comprehension and without sin required that knowledge, how much more do we? Let us pray. Remind us on this Sunday, our God, that this book that stands open before us in worship every Sunday morning accomplishes very, very little if it is not open in our daily lives. We pray that you would draw us to his pages like a, like a thirsty man to cool and refreshing waters, like, like Jesus' thoughts were drawn to those stones and the bread that his power might cause them to be. We pray that your word might become the staff of life for us, a light to our path, a lamp to our feet, truth and righteousness and glory and power. We ask this, our God, in part for our happiness as your children, but far more than that, for your glory as our Lord.